Um, Brad, Brad preached here back at, at the beginning of September, and I was so blessed by that. We were watching from a hotel room in Whistler, and I was just like, oh man, I love our church, even on live stream. Uh, and today, so blessed by your, your guys' leadership. So thank you so much. I, you know, when Nate was talking before, I was just like, yeah, like it's such an exciting time as a church. And, and I think what, uh, what we are so excited about, especially, is the sense of, of unity. Uh, you know, I, I think when Nate and I meet in the sense that we really are longing and desiring for the same things. And, and what you said, Nate, I was just like, yeah, fully. Amen. Amen. And so um, and I, I see that with our whole leadership team. This, this is an exciting season for our church. Uh, I, I feel like I do this every every Sunday as we're going through Acts, but uh, you know I, I kind of say, well, here's what the Holy Spirit was doing in the first century, and here's here's an example of a time when He was doing something similar uh, in another stage of church history, and and it's not like I set out to do this every week, but but it's happening and it's happening again today. I, I want to tell you about one of my favorite, more recent figures in church history. Some of you might uh, might know the name of John Wimber. He looked, uh, he looked a lot like Santa Claus, actually, as you're going to see in a second here. Um, he looked like Santa Claus. He was about as jolly and as playful as Santa Claus. That's not John Wimber. That is not a picture of him. Um, in any case, he was, he was jolly. There he is. Oh, great resolution, Craig. Way to take that, to pick that picture. Um, so he was, he was a jolly, playful guy. He was, uh, he was a professional musician, actually, in the 1960s came to faith uh, as an adult and ended up leading hundreds and even thousands of people to faith, him and his wife. And so the church was like, well, I guess you might as well become a pastor of the church because of what, you, what you're doing. So they made him a, a pastor. Um, he became a, a professor at a seminary in California, but started getting disillusioned and, and burnt out. And, and in that time, the Holy Spirit began to do a work in him. Uh, him and his wife uh, planted a church that was leaning more into the gifts and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And uh, he, he started to preach through the book of Luke. And he had to preach all these stories of, of healing, because this is what Luke talks a lot about, is Jesus healing people. So he's, he's preaching these stories, and he said, you know, if I'm going to preach them, I, I should probably practice it. I should probably pray for the same. And so week in and week out, for 10 months, Wimber was, was praying four people in his church to receive healing. And for 10 months, nothing happened. He was scoreless for 10 months. And people started leaving the church because they were just kind of like, you know, nothing's, nothing's happening here. They're getting discouraged. And he wanted to quit, didn't want to keep on going. But he said, God told him clearly, you're not preaching your experience. You're preaching my word. So keep going. Ten months in, a man in the church calls him and wants him to come over and pray for his wife, who was extremely ill, lying in bed. And, and Wimber, his first thought was, oh no, God, what am I going to do? They believed what I said on Sunday. Uh, what he said was, well, of course, I'll come and, and pray for your wife. He gets there, and he later told his own wife that this woman would have needed to get better in order to die. Like, that's how, that's how badly she looked. And so he starts praying for her, and halfway through the prayer, he just turns to the husband and starts to explain to him why God is probably not going to heal his wife, because he's got this speech well rehearsed after 10 months. The husband isn't really paying attention, and is looking right past him with this huge smile on his face, because his wife is up and looking completely restored and healthy, and is making them coffee. And Wimber said that that healing started a trickle that became a stream. 
Uh, that church became known as the Vineyard Church, and it, it sparked a global movement of vineyard churches around the world from the 1980s to the present day where countless people have been touched by the Holy Spirit. And, and many people were healed. Not everybody was. Wimber died himself of, uh, uh, of health complications in his early 60s. And his, his son, who was very involved in the vineyard movement, died soon after that as well. So it's not like everybody got healed. But, but, but a lot of people were touched by the Holy Spirit, including in physical healing. Now, I'll, I'll just, you know, Wimber's thing, play, place my cards on the table here. Wimber's thing was was the, what, what Jesus did in the first century he continues to do today. And he, and he works through us. And so our desire is to do the stuff. That was his saying. We don't want to just read about the stuff. We want to do the stuff. And, and that's my conviction as well. That what we read about in a book like Acts is not just meant to be like a historical relic that we kind of look at and marvel at, but it's something that we actually want to see happen in our own day. The purpose of these stories is to shape our view of the world and of God and, and what he wants to do and, and to build up our faith. So that's what I'm praying for today. Well, let's, let's, let's pray. Let's go into that. Lord, uh, we thank you so much for, for Luke and, and for your Holy Spirit inspiring him to record these, these stories of what took place in the early church. And as we enter into it, God, Our prayer is not just that we would kind of dissect a story or even that we would marvel at it from a distance. But we are asking, Lord, that you would do the same kind of thing in us today, in this day and age. Lord, that you would bring about restoration, that you would bring about healing, that your kingdom would break in to this place, into this world, that your name, Jesus, would be made known and that many would trust in you. Lord, our our longing and our desire, Lord, is to see renewal, to see your Holy Spirit move in this place, Lord. We know that you are the hope of the world. We know that you are life, and we pray that others would know that too. Whatever whatever that takes, Lord, whatever whatever you want to do through us to make that happen, we receive it. And we pray you'd speak to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're we're in Acts chapter 3, verses 1 to 10 this morning, and I... I recruited a couple of superstar actors to help us out with that. So, here we go, Acts 3, 1 to 10. Going up to the temple at the time of prayer, at three in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those who entered the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, Look at us! Look at us! So the man gave him his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Walk! Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly, the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with him into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, 
as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate, calling beautiful, called beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Yeah! Yeah! Wow! <laughs> the did you know that? The beggar was way more concerned about the fiver in his hat <laughs> than with getting healed. That was his main concern. <laughs> so, I mean, that was just so adorable and cute, right? But um, let's set the context a little bit as well to give us the background there. So Peter and John are on the way to the temple to pray at a standard time in Judaism, which is an interesting note in and of itself, because we, we maybe sometimes think that after Pentecost, after the outpouring of the Spirit, Peter and John go, hey, let's start a new religion. Let's call it Christianity. It's going to be great. But that's not at all how the early disciples thought. They, they understood that Jesus was the fulfillment of their faith, the fulfillment of the story, and, and that by following Jesus, they were really being faithful Jews. And, and so they didn't break from Judaism. Instead, they understood that Jesus was the fulfillment of this. That's the New Testament view. And that all who weren't, this is what they figured out eventually, all who weren't ethnically Jewish but trusted in Jesus were grafted in to Israel, became part of Israel through faith in Jesus. So the relationship between Christianity and Judaism is way more organic and way more intertwined than a lot of people realize. So anyways, they're going up to temple, up to the temple, and there's this man who's sitting at the temple courts, at, at, at the gate, a high traffic area, which is what which is what, what you see today as well, right? If you're at an event downtown, let's say you're one of the 500 fans who goes to a BC Lions game, Ooh. And uh, you're, you're leaving the, the stadium, and you got, you got people there who are, who are panhandling, who are asking for, for money. This is kind of what happens in this day and age. Now, the difference as well, or the difference is that in the first century, these beggars were genuinely dependent on, on alms, on benevolence from others. Nobody was writing them a welfare check. So they really were dependent on this for their living. Disciples and the man. Now, what what follows, I, I want to note six things, maybe five things. I think I adjusted it. Five things I want to take note of in this story. And the first has to do with God's timing. Uh, there's this innocuous little detail, seemingly innocuous, in verse 2 that says that this man was put there every day. He was put at the gate every single day. This was his spot. Just like, again, if you're in the downtown east side or in the downtown elsewhere, people have their spot, right? You can, you can depend on them always being there. This, this was this man's spot. He was always there every single day. Now, why is that important? It's important because of what we read in Acts 2, verse 46, about how the disciples, the early church, continued to meet together every day in the temple courts. And at the very end of Luke, after Jesus' ascension, we read as well that the disciples were constantly in the temple courts. They didn't just go up there once in a while. They were there every single day. Now you see what this means, right? It means that this wasn't the first time Peter and John saw this guy. They saw him every day, multiple times a day, most likely, because he was always there and they were always going in. But never once before this had they prayed for healing. Not, maybe, maybe they had never even noticed this man before. Something unique happened right here in Acts chapter 3. I think what it was is that God placed a, a burden, a conviction 
uh, a sense, a strong sense of his leading to, to do something for this man. God made it impossible for them to ignore him on this one occasion. Uh, Wimber talked about this too. He said in those 10 months, uh, he learned a lot of things. He learned that the Bible speaks about different kinds of faith. He said, look, there's, there's saving faith that every follower of Jesus has. By definition, you trust in Jesus to save you. But there is also this faith that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 12, a spiritual gift of faith, a faith that can move mountains, a faith that God is going to do something miraculous. He's going to do something unique in this situation, that, that burning kind of like, I know this is going to take place. There's that kind of faith. And Wimber said that the key to exercising that kind of faith is to know when God's anointing is on you for a particular situation, to know when God is leading you to, to act in a certain way. You need to stay sensitive to his voice. See, God is sovereign. He doesn't always heal, not even close. And he has his purposes, and I can't explain why. I don't know why, I don't know why he heals some and, and not others. I don't know why you pass by somebody a hundred times and don't notice them, and the hundred and first time God says, no, pay attention and do something here. I don't know. But our job is not to figure that out, but to stay sensitive to his voice. Our job is to be available to him. Our job is to have our hearts in the right place so that when he calls on us, we're ready to go. That means repenting of sin. It means doing the things we talked about last week, being devoted to, to prayer and to fellowship and to God's word. It means, it means staying close to him, spending time with him, learning to hear and discern his voice and his leading so that when that time comes that we, we are available to him. You see God's timing here. Peter and John pass by. All of a sudden, they take note of him. Now, the second thing, the second thing I want to highlight here is the humanity of, of the beggar who is healed. He, uh, he asks Peter and John for money. And you can kind of imagine this because you've, you've experienced this scenario where you're walking by on the street and somebody's just holding a cup or a hat or something and, and they're just asking for money, but they're not looking at you, right? They're just asking. And, and for a lot of people, they either... Maybe drop a coin or a fiver in there and keep walking, or they ignore them altogether. Peter and John don't do that. They say to him, look at us. They want to make eye contact with him. They want to communicate, I think, that they are not just benefactors. They are fellow human beings. Because that's how they see this man. That he's not an object of pity. He is a fellow human being who God loves. There's this establishment of, of equality here. Look at us. We're, on the, we're, we're, we're both human beings here. You know what I mean? Not, not everybody even wants this. I, I will say there, there have been times where I've tried to uh, sit down with somebody on the, on the street and start a conversation with them. And sometimes it doesn't go well at all. Uh, I sit there. I remember one time I sat there and I started off with something like, hey, so what do you think the point of life is? And um, some people don't respond well to heavy hitter icebreakers like that. And he was just like, what? <laughs> he did not want me there. I didn't last there very long. Sometimes people don't, and that, you know, that, that, that was my social awkwardness. But, but sometimes people just don't they, don't, they don't actually want, they just want the handout. But if we're going to be object, uh, instruments of God's healing, 
then it is so crucial that we actually see people as fellow human beings, not as objects of pity, that we have compassion, genuine compassion for them. Because this is what we see in the ministry of Jesus a couple of times. So in, in Matthew, well, all the time in one sense, but Matthew 14, uh, Jesus lands on the, the shore of a lake. There's this large crowd that rushes to greet him. And we read in Matthew 14 that Jesus had compassion on them and he healed their sick. And then right after that is the, the story of the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 with loaves of bread and, and fish. And, and there too, it's Jesus has compassion on the crowds because they've traveled so long and they, they don't have any food. He sees them and, and his heart goes out to them. Matthew chapter 20, he's walking along and there's these two men who come from outside the city and they're blind men and they're crying out to Jesus and we read again that Jesus had compassion on them, touched their eyes and immediately they received their sight and followed him. See, Jesus heals, not just physically, but in every way he heals because he loves us. Even when we're at our lowest place, when there's nothing lovable about us, when we're just sitting there in our filth, he genuinely loves us. And that's why he heals. And if we are going to be instruments of healing, we can't just be doing it because this is a cool trick. I want to see a cool trick happen. It's got to be because we actually love people and see them as fellow human beings who bear God's image just as we do. I think that's what Peter and John do when they say, look at us. I think that's kind of what they're establishing. Now, the man looks at them, and and Peter uh, tells him, hey, I don't have any money, which to the man must have been like, what are you doing? What a waste of time. Get out of here. That's the letdown. That's what he wants. But Peter says, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. And I'm sure the man's going, oh, man, I can't wait for this. What's this going to be? In the name of of Jesus Christ of Nazareth walk. This is what Peter has to give this man is, is the power of Jesus, is the faith in Jesus. That's what Peter has. Faith that Jesus will heal. See, this man, all he wants is money. Like in his mind, that's, that's, what, that's what he needs. It doesn't enter his mind even that, that he could be healed and be able to walk. But Jesus has other things in store for him, and those things can't be bought with silver or gold. It has to come through faith in Christ. There's this uh, there's a story from the 12th century about the great medieval uh, writer and, and thinker uh, Thomas Aquinas. And I, you all know his name because you all re- read a lot of medieval theology, I know, so I don't have to explain to you who he is. But he was... Um, he, he was a great theologian, and he is visiting Pope Innocent II. Uh, and, and Innocent wasn't really living up to his name, at, well, ever. And uh, in this instance, he was counting a huge stack of money, kind of, I would imagine, gleefully with a cackle in his voice, you know, like, Mwahahaha! And he's counting his money, and Aquinas walks in, and the Pope kind of says to him, Hey, look, Thomas, no longer can the church say, uh, Silver and gold have I none. And Thomas Aquinas says, well, that's, that's true, but neither can the church say, now arise and walk. See, there's nothing wrong with silver and gold. 
inherently. There's nothing wrong with wealth inherently. We, we read in Acts chapter 2 that, that the disciples had stuff. They were selling it, giving it to the poor, that they were using their homes as places where people could gather and worship together. There's nothing wrong with money, especially when it is used uh, for hospitality, when it's used to serve, when it's used to help the poor, when it's used to bless and serve the kingdom. Nothing wrong with that. The problem is when we trust in it. When we think that our money is going to save us, when we think our worldly status is somehow going to save us. See, Jesus said that it was harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's not impossible, but it's really hard. Because the more wealth you have, the more likely you are to trust in it. To believe that this is everything that I need. This is what's going to save me. And, and, when the, and the more you trust in your wealth, the less access to spiritual power you have. And this was Aquinas' point, that if the church is all about money, you're, you're not going to have, you don't need faith in Jesus, you're, you're not going to rely on that. See, this is always a temptation, and it's a temptation for churches too. And I know I've mentioned this a bunch of times over the last four months, but I'm going to keep on mentioning it because I really want us to guard against this temptation. See, some churches might think, well, what we really need is more money so that we can build a better facility and hire more staff and have flashier, more attractive programs. Nothing wrong with any of that stuff inherently. I don't know if you've noticed, but kind of built a new facility. And we kind of like it. We kind of think it's really great. And it's, it's, it's an amazing gift. I love it. But if we think that this is what's going to save people, this is what is going to revive our church, then we are so off track because it's all about jesus right have i mentioned that before it's all about him and 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 he's the best thing we have going for us and so we cannot fall into the trap of of trusting in in this in 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 worldly things it is always faith in jesus it is always christ who saves that's where that's where our trust is i i don't i mean so this whole thing about it the more you trust in wealth the less access to spiritual power you have. Miracles are not non-existent in the Western world. They're not non-existent. But are they more rare here than they are in other parts of the world or at other times of history? I, I don't know if there's data about this. It's not one of those things that people track, maybe. But I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. I, um, when I was a young adult, I spent three weeks in, in Belize, Central American country, uh, with a missionary there. And this man was one of the most humble, servant-hearted men I've, I've ever met. Had basically no education, no means of supporting himself, but he, was, he had this, this, this calling to plant churches in these small little Belizean towns and villages that nobody else was going to go to. And, and so I got to spend three weeks with him. And the stories he told about God's provision for him and his family on almost a daily basis, miraculous provision stuff. You just kind of goes like, whoa! And, and the way that God had used him and his family to draw people to Jesus, that, that, that miracle of, of salvation, of conversion. I mean, it was just incredible, right? He had to depend on the Lord. And I think the reality is, is, is that we have a bit of a tough task ahead of us in a place like North Vancouver, where, where people gen, generally have 
have what they need. They, they can provide for themselves. They don't rely on miraculous means. That's fine. But it just, it means that we have to work that much harder to remind ourselves that faith is of infinitely more value in the kingdom of God than silver or gold. Again, use your money well. Use it to serve the kingdom. God, God calls us to that. But know that faith in Christ is what wins the day. So that's what happens with this, with this man. They, they say, you know, what we have, we give you. In the name of Jesus, walk, and, and his, his feet and his ankles are, are strengthened. He stands up. And, and let's, so now, fourth of all, look at the, at the result of this healing. And, and the result, of course, initially is just pure joy, right? How could it not be? It's just like mind-blowing, overwhelming joy. Because this man has been lame from birth all his life. He's grown up watching other kids, other people run around and play games and be able to move from place to place without assistance and to be able to provide for themselves. And it probably never entered his mind that that could ever be him. Right? I, I'm, I'm sure he had resigned himself to th- this is what life is going to be until one day suddenly everything changes. You know how much I love the, the show The Chosen. Um, if you haven't watched it yet, what's wrong with you? I love the show The Chosen. And <laughs> um, I, I, there's, a, there's a quote, and I, I was going to check it again this morning to make sure I got it right, and I, then I didn't, so I'm going to butcher it. But it's something like, I was once this way, and now I'm another way, and the space in between was him. Uh, I, just, I, love, I love the way they, they say that. And, and so for this man, he once was that way, and now he's this way. He's walking and leaping. And what happened in the space in between was Jesus. And so, of course, he's overflowing with, with joy. He's celebrating. He's praising God. And, and as a Jewish man, he knew that this, that this is where praise belongs. You notice that, right? That he doesn't praise Peter and John. Because that would be a temptation, wouldn't it? If you had been lame all your life, couldn't walk, and then suddenly these two guys just speak one sentence and boom, you're up and you're dancing and jumping around, you would be tempted to kind of give your praise to them, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you want to say like, hey, whoa, you guys saved my life. Now he knew not to do that as a Jewish man, but in other parts of the Bible, that doesn't take place. Later on in Acts uh, guys named Paul and Barnabas are in a city of, of the city of Lystra, and uh, they also are used by Jesus to heal a man who had been lame from from birth. And the whole city goes, "Whoa, these guys must be gods!" And so they they get their priests to come, and they're going to offer sacrifices to them. They're just like these these guys have come down from heaven. And and Peter or uh, Paul and Barnabas shut that down. They say, "No, no, no." This is not what you should be doing. Focus on Jesus. Direct your praise to him. But, but that's the temptation of the human heart, isn't it? Not only to give praise to humans, but to receive it as well. There have been too many stories of people who have been used by Jesus and they get put on a pedestal and they go, yes, bring it on. One of my, one of my professors in seminary would say a lot, a lot of people do something like this. You know, they go, oh, no, no, keep it, you know, and don't, don't praise me. But, you know, into it, in, in, in underneath, they're kind of going, yeah, give it to me. If, if Jesus ever uses me or uses our leaders to bring people to the knowledge of Christ, to bring about healing, 
We're not, we're not the ones you thank. You, you thank the Lord. You praise the Lord. He's, he's the one who gets the glory, okay? That's, that's how this works. That's the result of this healing, is, is God is praised. God is glorified. And with the crowds, they, they're interested, right? Just like they were in Acts 2, when they hear the disciples speaking in all of these dialects and languages they have no business knowing, the crowds see what's happened because they know the guy. They've seen him for years, for decades. They've witnessed him there. Then all of a sudden, he's healed. He's walking. He's jumping. And so they want to know what's happening. They're filled with wonder and amazement. And it opens the way for Peter to share with them about Jesus, just like it did in Acts 2. Um, Sam Storms, who's a, an author and a, and a pastor, great uh, Bible teacher, he says that the, the miraculous deeds in the New Testament serve four purposes. They are uh, doxological, meaning they, they lead people to praise God, to honor Him. They're pastoral, meaning they are an expression of God's care and compassion for people. They're, they're edifying, which means that they build the church up, they encourage people, and they're evangelistic meaning that they give an openness, they create an openness for the gospel to be proclaimed. I think you see all of those here in this passage in one way or another, but the the accent, I think, in the book of Acts is often that evangelistic thing, that the Spirit works in these ways, heals in the name of Jesus, and it creates an openness. People are intrigued. They're, They're able to hear the good news of Jesus. Because remember, the Holy Spirit always glorifies Jesus. This is what the Spirit's about. If you like Jesus, you're going to like the Spirit, right? That's kind of what I've said. It's all about Him. And that's what the Spirit does here. Which leads to, to a fifth and final point. We'll spend just a little bit more time here, which is, is what this healing kind of indicates about the stage of history that we're in. Um, every, every, every passage in the New Testament is connected with what's around it, with the Bible as a whole. They don't, these stories aren't just brought to us in a contextualist vacuum. So here, we, we think about the times when Jesus healed people who weren't able to walk. And now you've got the disciples doing Jesus things. That's what we're called to do as a church, right? We're the body of Christ. We're supposed to heal and to speak His, his truth. And we're supposed to do and say Jesus things, right? That's what, that's what our calling is. But there's another connection with this passage, with, with an Old Testament uh, prophecy. Isaiah chapter 35. And I just want to read a few lines from, uh, from Isaiah. We read there, God's saying, Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Did you catch it? The lame will leap like a deer, They'll enter Zion with singing. Acts chapter 3. He jumped to his feet. He went with them in the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. Coincidence? I don't think so. No. See, Isaiah, in Isaiah, God says, I am going to restore. 
I am going to bring life out of death. I am going to reverse the decay that is taking place. The blind are going to see. The lame are going to walk. The desert is going to bloom. This is what God is going to do. And in a Jewish mindset, Old Testament mindset, this is what's going to happen when the Messiah comes. This is what's going to happen at the end of days, is that God is going to undo all of this all the stuff that leads to death, leads to decay, leads to corruption, God's going to undo all of that when the Messiah comes. Well, there's this interesting thing that takes place in the New Testament because, of course, we believe that the Messiah has come. And we believe that we are now in the last days. We talked about this before, that everything between first coming and second coming of Jesus is the last days. And yet, it's not the fullness of the age to come. I have a little, little diagram here. Can we show that one up there? Um, hopefully this kind of helps you understand what I mean. New Testament scholars talk about how we live in a time that is already and not yet. It's like Jesus has come. The kingdom of God has invaded the world. It's been established in the world, but not in its fullness. There's this ongoing rebellion, this ongoing counter movement. And, and so we, we live in a, in a kind of a mixed world. Jesus uses the parable of the wheat and the, the weeds that grow up together, and you're not going to separate them until the harvest at the end, until the final judgment, because we live in this time that is already, we get glimpses of eternity, we get glimpses of the age to come, but we're still also living in the present day when all of this other stuff exists at the same time. Does that make sense? And if it doesn't, I don't know if you know this, but I don't only work on Sundays. Uh, I'm around, and I would love to chat with you. If, if you hear me saying things, and you're like, I have no idea what he was, he was, spe- was he speaking in tongues? I don't know what he was doing. You can talk to me. You can, you can reach out to me. I love to go deeper with people. I love to, love to chat about what you've heard. Um, so I hope that makes, that makes sense. That's why not everybody is healed. That's why, that's why there's still death and corruption in the world. But every healing, in fact, every, every person who is brought from death to life in, in terms of their soul, in terms of coming to faith in Jesus, is an indication that the kingdom of God is broken into this world. And that this present world of sin and decay and death is passing away. Every healing, every time someone is saved, every time someone comes into contact with with God's love is a promise of what will one day take (laughs) what will one day take place in the age to come. It's it's a promise. It's a sign. It's an indication. Do you know what I mean? This is what Jesus has done. He's established the kingdom in this world. He's planted it, and he's, he's planted the flag, and he said, "For all who will trust in me, here it is." We live in the already and not yet. And every healing is an indication of that. Every healing, every salvation, everything is is an indication of what will one day be the case for all who trust in Christ. Now what this means then is that things like this in Acts 3 are not just for the New Testament. It's not just for the apostles. It's not just for the first century. Because some Christians think this. They look at a passage like Acts 2.43, which says everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And they think, well, that must mean that only the apostles performed 
these signs and these wonders. But you run into a bunch of problems with that, actually even right in, in the book of Acts itself, because you have all kinds of non-apostles doing these kinds of things. You've got Stephen in Acts 7, Philip in Acts 8, Ananias in Acts 9. You've got uh, believers in Antioch in Acts 13. You've got believers in Ephesus in Acts 19. You've got Philip's four daughters in Acts 21. And then in the rest of the Bible, you've got Paul writing to the Galatians, the Corinthians, the Thessalonians, the, the, the Romans, assuming that these gifts of the Spirit, miraculous gifts, are, are functioning, that they're operating in these churches. And, and none of those people are any more apostles than you or I. And if, like I just said, the, the purpose of these, of these kinds of miraculous healings are to indicate what is, what is going to come and a sign that the kingdom of God has entered into the world, and if the result of those healings is doxology and edification and evangelism and, and God's compassion and care, then all of that is as relevant today as it's ever been. That hasn't changed. We still need all of that. And, and, and we still live in this already and not yet time. And so I am so firmly convinced that the gifts of the Spirit, including healing, are, are for us today. That they are for anyone to whom God wants to give them and is willing to receive them. They're for any church that God wants to give, God is sovereign. He doesn't give the gift to everyone and it doesn't happen, not nearly all the time, but to anyone who will receive it. Any church that is willing to receive it and God wants to give it, it's for today. So to kind of, I want, I want to kind of sum up where, where we've been and, and, and also I, I just need to offer a couple of disclaimers as we go. I, I hope what you have not heard me say today is that, um, I've tried to say it very clearly a number of times, God is not going to heal everyone. And it's, it's not like, like physically. If you've got a physical illness, it's not like, boom, if you trust in Jesus, you'll be healed. And it's not that, it's not that if you don't get healed, it's because you didn't have enough Faith, not at all. God is sovereign. We don't understand his purposes. So it's not that. And, and faith in the name of Christ does not mean that we don't, we, we don't use other means of healing. Some of you know that my son was, uh, he was, well, he was born with a congenital heart defect. We prayed for five years uh, for, for miraculous healing of his heart so that he wouldn't require the surgeries that he did. That, that prayer wasn't answered. Uh, and, and, and so he had, he had two surgeries and God's grace was, was with us in those ways. We're so thankful for God giving surgeons and doctors the abilities and, and the wisdom to know what to do. And, and, and you know, it, it's, we, we've seen his provision all the way, all the way through. So it's, it's not like an, an either or, okay? It's, it's a both and. We, we use the gifts that God has given us to heal, but we also pray for him to do what we cannot do. It's not an either or, it's, it's, it's a both and kind of thing. But God does. I really believe that he does work in miraculous ways at times to bring about a knowledge of his son, to create an openness, and as an expression of his care and his love. And I, don't, we, don't we want to be open to that? Do we? I hope so. Why wouldn't we want to see that? Why wouldn't we want God to do everything in and through us that he's willing to do, that he wants to do in order to make Jesus known? Right? 
That, that's that's got to be our desire. So let's stay close to him. Let's, be, let's, let's grow in our sensitivity to his leading, to his voice. Let's make sure that we are devoted to the things that we are to be devoted to and making ourselves available to him. But I, I want to finish with a different appeal. Because I've been talking a lot about us being instruments of healing, but the truth is, of course, that a lot of us, and this is getting beyond just the realm of physical healing, but a lot of us need healing ourselves. And, and what strikes me about this beggar is that every day he was literally placed in the pathway of God's blessing. Right? He didn't stay at home, didn't stay, he didn't keep it covered up, Every day, he sat there by the temple courts. He was in the pathway of God's blessing. So when Peter and John came and God's spirit said, this is the guy, it happened. There are a lot of people in our world today who need healing, desperately need healing, but they're not putting themselves in the pathway of God's blessing. They become experts at covering it up, at hiding it. And can I say that this is especially an issue in a place like North Vancouver, where everybody kind of has their stuff together and you kind of present this picture to the world. And can I say it's especially an issue uh, in a church sometimes where, where there's this maybe unspoken pressure to have your life together, to, to look, you know, like, like you know what you're doing. And, and maybe can I say that it's especially an issue for men? That a lot of men are, are dealing with deep brokenness by turning to addiction or, or by just persisting in this brokenness, this relational brokenness, and they're not willing to actually receive healing because that would mean actually bringing things to the light. That would actually mean letting others in. You know, it, it, it strikes me as well that when Jesus meets the, the man at the pool in Bethesda, he asks him, do you want to be healed? Actually asks him that because that's not, that's not an inevitability. Somebody could really need healing and they could just so, could say, no, I, I don't want it. I, I don't want to be in the spotlight. I don't, want, I don't want this to be made known. I'd rather cover this up and kind of self-medicate. Jesus wants to heal. And I promise you, and, and the longer I'm in pastoral ministry, the more I'm convinced of this. Um, this is, again, this is, not just, this is not about physical healing now. This is in a broader sense. The more I'm convinced that if, if you follow Jesus, if you truly surrender your life to him as Lord, that that is the best thing you can do. That it is the thing that will address the brokenness in your life and that will lead you into eternal life is just to, to submit to him, to surrender to him, to orient your life around him, to be his disciple. I promise you that if you're willing to do that, that he will bring about transformation. He will bring about restoration in your life. He will bring about healing one way or another because this is what he does. And the kingdom of God has come among us in him. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we praise you for your power. Your power over death, your power over de decay, your power over illness and sickness. We praise you, Jesus, that the kingdom of God has come into our midst and even now we, we glimpse it, we, we get a foretaste of it, we experience bits and pieces of it. 
Lord, we long for that. We long for the age to come. We long for the kingdom of God. We long for that time when you will make all things new and you will wipe every tear from our eyes. And so Jesus, we just want to pray now in this time, in this age, for as many, as many signs of the kingdom as we can possibly get. We, we pray, Lord, for as much of the experience of the kingdom of God now in this present day as you will give us, Lord, because that is what our hearts long for. It's what we desire. So, Lord, we pray even now this morning that your kingdom would come among us. Lord, that you would show yourself to us as King and Lord over all and that we would surrender ourselves to you. I, just, I, I say that week in and week out, Lord, but, but may we be surrendered to you. We desire your healing. We desire your presence. We desire your name to be made known through us. So come, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen.